Well, if you have God's word, please turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, as we work verse by verse through this great epistle. We will be looking at particularly verses 13 to 18, but I want to read starting from verse 11 all the way to verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be reading starting from verse 11 all the way to verse 20. And may God plant his eternal word into our souls. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, unless the eyes of our hearts are open, we would be left in the dark. Unless our hearts are made receptive, we will be stubborn and prideful in heart. Unless our wills are pliable to yours, we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Spirit of God, open the eyes of our hearts. Make our hearts ready to receive your word and our wills aligning with yours through the power of the scriptures. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the theme brought before us in our passage is the sureness, the certainty, the stability of the promises, the promises of God. That is the key word in our text. Back in verse 12, inherit the promises. Verse 13, God made the promise. Verse 15, he obtained the promise. Verse 17, the heirs of the promise. And the main purpose for the certainty of God's promise is to encourage us to have full assurance of hope until the end. Now you'll see the purpose made very clear by the author in verses 17 to 18. It says, in the same way God desires. Now take note, whenever God desires something for us, all attention needs to be given. So what does God desire of us? Even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with a note so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. There it is. He wants to strongly encourage us. To what end? To take hold of the hope set before us. In other words, God's great desire for us tonight is to have the highest degree of assurance and confidence in God. And the Lord is pleased to do so by his sure promises and by his most solemn oaths. 
Now, no group of theologians worked harder or was better at spelling out the biblical doctrine of assurance of faith than the 17th century Puritans. They treasured assurance of personal salvation, and they were very keen on connecting the foundation of assurance to the promises of God. Now, Pastor Minji last week quoted Thomas Brooks, but let me quote him again in his magisterial cabinet of jewels. He put it this way in his concluding sentence. Now when any fears or darkness or doubts or disputes arise in your souls about your spiritual state, oh, then run to Christ in the promise and plead the promise and let your souls cleave to the promise for this is the way of ways to have your evidence cleared, your comforts restored, your peace maintained, your graces strengthened, and your assurance raised and confirmed, close quote. This is one reason why Thomas Brooks would spend hours over the Word of God meditating upon God's promises. Now, men like Thomas Brooks had little to their possessions. They had no other resources to fall back on. They were driven to lay hold to the promises of God for their very existence. And so they fulfilled the enigma of the Apostle Paul when he says, having nothing, yet possessing all things. And the Puritans viewed the assurance of hope in Christ as a fountain that refreshed the Christian in his trials on his road to glory. In another place, Brooks said that assurance makes heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. It makes the soul sing care away. And this is precisely what the author of Hebrews is seeking to encourage his beleaguered and tried saints. He desires that their souls sing away their cares away. Now, of course, we know that these Hebrews were in such conditions of heavy afflictions. Their goods had been spoiled. They had endured a great light of affliction. They were being persecuted. And they were tempted to fall back to Judaism where life was once comfortable. Therefore, the Holy Spirit in these pages directed their minds to the exceeding great and precious promises Promises in which God has pledged and sworn to keep and to furnish them with far greater riches than any earthly riches can ever attain to this life. It was surely a good exchange that the author of Hebrews was reminding of them to lose all and to recover their all in God. Now, in order for us to have great encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us and to have the highest degree of assurance, the author will do so by Four powerful ways. And I want you to note the first one. And that is by looking at the example of Abraham's life. Now, in context, we know that verse 13 is a continuation of the author's intent to encourage the congregation. Now, after a very chilling passage in which the author makes very clear and makes a very powerful warning against turning our backs on Jesus, and then in beginning in verses 9 to 12, his goal is not to undermine the assurance of true believers, but to exhort them to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. He says in essence to them, I expect better things for you, Christian. I don't expect for you to turn your backs on Jesus. I see the evidences of God's grace at work in your life. I see how you love and care for one another as one of the evidences of God's grace. Then as a loving and caring pastor, he desires, he wants that everyone show the same diligence 
to the very end in order to make their hope sure. He fears that some members of the church are deficient in hope. He knows that they cannot persevere without it. And so he points them in verse 12, not to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The danger of being sluggish and dull are repeated over and over in this book. In order to awaken them out of their sluggishness, which can lead to the disaster of apostasy, he points us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then beginning with the explanatory 4 in verse 13, he provides an illustration to support what came before. Now we know that at times an illustration can be more effective than plain abstract teaching. Earlier at the end of chapter 5, the author illustrated the regression of believers by using the example of milk and solid food. And once more, he resorts to an illustration. And what better illustration can he employ before these Hebrew Christians than the life and hope that Abraham lived? If there is anyone in the Old Testament who best exemplified hope, it is Abraham. Now to quote the Apostle Paul's memorable words in Romans 4.18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. That is, Despite all contrary appearances, despite the fact that from a human perspective, the situation for him was utterly hopeless, his confidence in God's word remained unshaken. Now, the incident in Abraham's life that the author picks out in Hebrews is that gut-wrenching trial when he was asked by God to offer his son Isaac as an offering in Genesis 22. You can turn there with me if you like, but it will be helpful to review briefly the background of this incident in Abraham's life. Now, from the beginning, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, God had promised that he would make him a great nation. The promise was repeated and enlarged many times during the years of Abraham's pilgrimage. But in all these years, from Abraham's early 70s to when he was 99 years old, Abraham had only one son, Ishmael. And the small company of his immediate family seemed to shrink, if anything. Terah died. Lot, his nephew, abandoned him to live near Sodom. And when Abraham was 99, God appeared to him again and changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, father of a great multitude. Now think of the ridicule that Abraham would have received when he announced to the people around him at the age of 99, hey, everyone. I'm going to change my name. Do not call me Abram any longer, but call me the father of a great multitude. Now, I'm sure that behind Abraham's back, his servants would have said, the old man has gone nuts, right? The older he gets, the more wilder his imagination gets. He wants us to call him what now? You can imagine how this would have made for a pretty good laugh. But the time comes and God performs his promise. And the child is named Isaac, which means laughter. And the company of Abraham would have surely had a good laugh the rest of their lives. Well, what marvelous ways God deals with us. Well, God specifically confirmed this son Isaac as the son of his promise. He says back in Genesis 19 that I will establish my covenant with him 
as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now Abraham loved Isaac, and he was extremely proud of him. But even more important than this, all of Abraham's spiritual hopes were centered on Isaac. How much Abraham must have been at peace and resting in the hope that finally God would fulfill his promise in the blessing of a redeemer that would come out of the line of Isaac. But suddenly this peaceful world was shattered. God put Abraham to a great test. Probably the greatest test of any of God's servants that he ever went through. God said in Genesis 22:2, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now you know one of the most powerful temptations that Christians face as they go through trials and suffering is to borrow a phrase from John Owen, to have hard thoughts about God. Now by hard thoughts, Owen does not have in mind our honest questions that naturally arise amidst our struggles, such as why, how come, how long, what does this mean, when will it end? Such questions are not only understandable in the midst of great pain, but they're also very healthy for the Christian. But by hard thoughts, Owen has in mind distorted perceptions of God, making God appear something that he is not, tyrannical perhaps, or even demonic. These are temptations that arise from our suffering and struggle that entice us to think ill of God, to imagine God to be cruel or brutish. Such hard thoughts are destructive because not only does it hide God from us, but they lead us to ultimate despair. This is a temptation that Abraham faced in this test. Abraham could have concluded from all of this that God was cruel and that he was harsh after waiting so long for a son to now have to kill him. He could have concluded that God can't be trusted because it seems as if God was wavering from one plan to another. Or Abraham could have concluded that although he being finite and sinful, was unable to see the meaning behind all of this and how perplexing the whole situation was, God could nevertheless be trusted and that God's plan was best even though he did not understand it. Now what conclusion did Abraham come to? The answer is revealed in verse 3 of Genesis 22. In one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham's confidence in God and his promises was so firm that he simply obeyed without question the command to offer up his son Isaac. What is it that sustains such obedience? Look at verse 5 at Abraham's conviction. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there. And look at this. Not only I will come back to you, but we, that is my son and I, we will worship and we will return to you. Hebrews 11.9 explains that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He reasoned that even if I kill my son Isaac, my God will raise him from the dead. Then Isaac had gone down the checklist 
fire, check. Wood, check. Then the haunting question, but where is the lamb? Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What faith, what confidence. Abraham may not be sure of God's method, but he is sure of God. God had shown that he could be trusted. And so Abraham believed God and obeyed, even though he could not understand the solution to the difficulty. And when we read on in the Genesis account, we know what happens next. As Abraham was about to slay his son, he was immediately stopped by the angel of the Lord. And after a ram was found as a substitute for Isaac, the angel of the Lord called Abraham the second time. And there we see in verse 16 of Genesis 22, the oath of God. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, of course, this was a direct quotation taken by the author of Hebrews back in chapter 6, verse 14. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now, we'll talk about the importance of God's oath in a later point. But what I want you to see here is the importance of God's repeated promise with an oath that it took place after the trial of Abraham's faith. In other words, the divine oath given by God is a response to Abraham's great faith, not so much to his doubt. God rewarded Abraham's faith with a special promise with the addition of an oath to strengthen further his faith to persevere in a very emphatic way. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so go back to Hebrews chapter 6. The author continues his thought in verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. You see, Abraham's life is meant to teach us, to encourage us. And the point the author of Hebrews is making is to hold up Abraham's life that by persevering in the faith, despite great obstacles, despite many causes to doubt, he clung tenaciously to the promise. And in so doing, he obtained it. Here's the principle that we are to draw from Abraham's life. That faith gives birth to hope. And hope, in turn, strengthens faith. Abraham's faith flourished and persevered because it fastened upon God's promises. And the hope of God's promises, now reaffirmed with an oath, is what strengthened his faith. Or as Philip Hughes in his excellent commentary says, it was his faith that engendered his firm hope that though delayed, the fulfillment of the promises would not fail. And this hope stimulated his patient perseverance through prolonged and perplexing testing. This is what the author is seeking to encourage his people and to us he says, look at Abraham's life and learn how to nurture faith and make your hope sure. You see, true faith by nature 
awakens hope. And hope is what is necessary to persevere in the faith. Christian hope and faith are interrelated. But there is a distinction. Faith is the foundation of hope. Faith is what gives birth to hope. Now simply put, faith believes, but hope waits patiently. Or faith believes all that God has promised, but hope expects it. We may rightly say that Abraham was prepared to offer up his son Isaac because of his great faith in God. But it was also because he hoped and expected that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. And so havingly patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now it's important to note that in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews observes that Abraham never did receive all that was promised to him in this life. And so in what sense did Abraham obtain the promise? I want you to turn to John chapter 8, 56. John chapter 8, 56. Jesus in his controversy with the Jews in John 8, 56 told them, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, although we are not certain of the full extent of the meaning of this, we can be sure of this, that when Abraham waited patiently for God to provide a son for him and Isaac, he claimed the promise of the coming of the Messiah for himself. He obtained the promise Though he never physically saw Jesus' day, but he obtained it by patiently waiting. Abraham, you see, was not only a man of faith, but he was a man of hope. This is why the author of Hebrews says to imitate the faith and the persistent hope of Abraham because many were in danger of thinking that the Christian hope is not as real as the hopes that is offered by the world, especially because it seemed like there was a long delay of the promised blessings. They were tempted to think that the Christian life is not all that it's cracked up to be. And so little by little, they started taking their eyes off of the Christian hope of glory, the greatness of eternal life with God, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal joy of salvation. And they started to put their eyes and desires toward present pleasures. And they became sluggish in their faith because they did not hold on to the hope that was set before them. And so the author is exhorting them and us, keep a lively faith in God and keep a lively faith in His promises. And though there will be sufferings and trials and though the promise of God may seem a long time coming, keep your faith in God for this will foster hope and this hope of eternal glory will enable you to persevere in your faith. And so author points to Abraham as the model of trust and hope that we are to imitate. But he wanted to do more. He wasn't satisfied merely by looking at Abraham as a moral example. He wanted to describe how God's promise and oath to Abraham is the same unchangeable promise and firm oath to us. So secondly, then we want to see how we are encouraged to lay hold of the hope set before us by seeing that God's promises are sure and unchangeable. Now, starting from verse 16, you notice the focus of this exposition that it shifts sharply from Abraham 
to the Christian. Look at what he says in verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, heirs of the promise. Now here we need to appreciate what the author is doing in encouraging us to attain the hopes set before us. When God gave the promise to Abraham, I will surely bless you. He meant that this divine blessing would be applicable to all believers by calling them heirs of the promise. That means, beloved, that God's promise to Abraham transcends the centuries and is relevant to us today as it was in Abraham's day. Now I want you to turn to Galatians. Go to Galatians 3. Go to Galatians 3. Look at verse 16. Now it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now follow the Apostle Paul's logic and argument. Look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith, In Christ Jesus. And then look down at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This means that every believer, everyone who has come to Christ in faith, is part of the seed of Abraham and thus one of the heirs of the promise. We, like Abraham, become God's children and heirs with him with all the blessings of salvation. And so when the writer writes in verse 17 that God wanted to make his unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, he reminds us that the purpose of God is to make us heirs. And this unchanging purpose of God, we are reminded from Ephesians 1, has been determined from all eternity. You see, when God took Abraham out beneath the dark sky and he pointed to all of the countless stars, he was pointing to us. And you can be sure of being one of the vast starry hosts of spiritual descendants to Abraham because it is firmly rooted and accomplished through his one special descendant, Jesus Christ. God's promise to have us as heirs of the promise is firm, absolute, and unchanging. Now there's a great verse in 2 Corinthians 1.20 where it says, For all the promises of God find their yes In Jesus, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Whenever you find yourself doubting God's will to save you, whenever you find yourself so low and so guilty under the righteous wrath of God, when you feel utterly depraved and helpless in great despair, you carry it all to God's throne. You carry it to his covenant and to his word and to his promises. And how does he meet you? What does he say to you? He does not meet you with a perhaps, but with a yes. He does not give you a weak, wavering, half-audible perhaps. But God gives you a strong, clear, inviolable yes. He does not say he will try what he can do for you. He doesn't say he'll consider your situation when he has a more convenient time. And in the meantime, just try to hold on to something else. And then try to call upon me later on. 
My friend, God does not deal with poor, afflicted souls as such. He doesn't want us to be like the young man who is in love with the young lady, but isn't sure she loves him back. And in his doubt and despair, he picks up a rose petal, taking one rose petal apart, saying, she loves me, she loves me not. That's not how God wants us to live. He loves me, he loves me not. The prospect that God holds out to you is not a possibility. It's not a probability, friends. It is at once, without hesitation, without limit, without reserve. He gives you his strong and firm yes, because it is in Jesus Christ. God's love for us and his purposes to save us are absolute, firm, and inviolable. But how do I know that God's promises to me are sure and unchangeable? How can I know for certain? Well, his word ought to be enough, but to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's promise to Abraham and to us are fully guaranteed, he does so by means of an oath. This is the third point the author makes in encouraging us to obtain the hope set before us, and that is by observing God's unchangeable promises that they are interposed with an oath. Now, the word interpose is a verb that is used only here in the New Testament. And its basic understanding has to do with mediation. And for this reason, the NASB has rendered this as interpose. And the sense is that God has interposed the oath between himself and Abraham. However, interpose is a little bit weak in its understanding. God is not merely interposing as a mediator, but as one theological dictionary the New Testament puts it, in giving the promise, God is, as it were, one of the parties. But with his oath and its guarantor, he puts himself on neutral ground and pledges the fulfillment of the promise. And so the sense of the word interpose is much stronger. And we ought to understand it as to guarantee, to vouch for, And so if you have an ESV, it renders it this way. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed it with an oath. Now this is the reason for including verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now, if you want to guarantee the truthfulness and the reliability of a promise that you've made, you will likely swear on the most personal, significant, and valuable object that you can think of. That explains why so many swear on their mother's grave. Human beings are known to lie and change their mind. And so if they are to be trusted... They must swear by the character of something else or someone greater than themselves to reassure their party that they will keep their word, but not God. He has nothing greater to swear than by himself. That was the point of bringing up Abraham's example. He says back in verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Because for God to have sworn by someone or something other than himself would imply either that the person or thing by which he swears by is greater than God himself, and therefore God must be less than God, or it would make his promise fickle 
and uncertain since he is swearing by someone less than God. But God never changing in his holiness, the very standard of justice and truth, he is and cannot lie. In a court of law, it used to be the case that one had to place a hand on the Bible swearing an oath. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but so help me God. But if God were to step up to the witness stand, he would have nowhere to place his hand but on his own chest. But that all begs a question. Why does God have to swear at all? God doesn't have a problem with lying. So why is he taking an oath? Not because his word is weak, but because our faith is weak. God knows that we struggle with believing his promises. And so he says, child, I know that it's hard for you to believe my word. And so here's what I'm going to do for you. That in addition to my promise, I'm going to swear an oath to you. I want you to be doubly sure. Oh, how astonishing, beloved, is the condescension of God. That God would voluntarily put himself under any obligation at all is enough to amaze us. But that he should go as far as to accommodating to our own weaknesses and to accommodate himself to some lowly human custom in order to guarantee his promise with an oath is a condescension beyond all imagination. Beloved, let us be comforted in knowing that God does not need to swear. God does not need oaths because his word is infallibly trustworthy. And yet here he swore an oath to give an added assurance to provide extra affirmation. And now, dear friends, who among us dare doubt this? Who among us dare come forward and say that the oath of God is false? Who among us would call into question that the promises of God guaranteed by his oath? You see, we are ready to believe and accept the truthfulness of those that we love. But yet when it comes to our God, our Heavenly Father, and Jesus, our elder brother, why, why do we at times do not believe him? If a loved one, assuming that they are an honest and good person, promised anything to us, we would count it a great dishonor if we immediately doubted their word. How badly at times we treat our God. How greatly we dishonor him. When we doubt his word, this ought to drive us to ask God for forgiveness for this deep atrocity. And when we do so, the promises of God ring back loud and clear. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a hyper sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from good works to serve the living God. And then God doubly assures you. And he says, dear child of God, and as he takes the witness stand, he places his hand over his chest and he says, I swear by myself so that we would not fall prey to unbelief again. But the author goes even further than this then looking at God's promise guaranteed with an oath to give you a strong encouragement to take hope. Fourthly, he wants us to understand 
that the grounds of our hope and in His promises is entirely on who God is. Listen to how the author concludes all of this in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, that is the unchangeable word of promise and the oath guaranteed upon His character, then it says in which it is impossible for God to lie. Did you catch the accumulation of the author's argument? Do you see the tidal wave of reassuring thought? Not only by the unchangeable word of promise, not only was that word guaranteed by an oath, but that these two unchangeable things depends entirely on the unchanging nature of God. Here's a good summary of this passage. Two immutable things and one immutable God. When it says it is impossible for God to lie, it reminds us of that great verse in Numbers 23.19 where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Listen, God can no more lie. God can no more change his mind than he can stop being God. The moment God stops being God is the moment you can distrust God. Friends, ask yourselves, does God's love for his son, Jesus Christ, ever change? Does our Heavenly Father's love for his only son, Jesus, ever fluctuate? Impossible. It is because God loves himself without change that his love for us is a love that does not change. Should his love for himself fluctuate, there would be very little assurance that his love for us would remain the same. Can you imagine if God's love were not immutable? Can you imagine if God's promises to love us as he loves his own son can ever change? Do you see that as a result of this, the Father's love for us must be unchanging? Otherwise, he would have to stop loving his own son. Listen to A.W. Tozer on the massive implication of the unchanging God. He says, what peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never defers from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Then he says, today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. This ought to greatly comfort us, Christian. We should never doubt in the experience of God's love for us, one day not feeling it as much as the next day or the day before. God's promises in Christ are not yes today because I'm enjoying them, because I'm strong in the faith, and then no tomorrow because I am changed darkened in my mind, fluttering between hope and fear, trying to regain my foundation. They are not yes today because life is peaceful and I feel the sunshine of God's grace upon my life. And then no tomorrow when the clouds may gather and screen the bright vision from my view. They are not yes and no shifting back and forth to my ever-changing moods when I feel great hope 
and when I'm down in despair, in the sunshine, and in the dark, cloudy days. No, they are always yes in Christ because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it is because his promises are yes in Christ. It is because his love is eternally immutable that we can sing together, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Knowing that God's promises are sure and unchangeable. Knowing that God's promises are guaranteed with an oath. And knowing that this is all grounds upon himself who is unmutable. What is the result of this, dear Christian friend? There's two applications I'd like for us to close with. Number one, flee to Christ for refuge. Now, believers who have put their hope in Christ are described here in verse 18 as those who have taken refuge. Now, I believe these words point to the old Jewish institution of the cities of refuge, where a manslayer would flee from the avenger to one of the cities of refuge. It reminds us that as Christians, we were once in danger, not from the vengeance of a mere man, but the vengeance of a holy God. We were once in great danger to God's wrath. And Christ Jesus has called us to shelter in his wounds. And we had fled to him from the wrath to come. Christ Jesus is our shelter, our rock, and our refuge. It reminds us of the words of a dying monk. When putting aside all the paraphernalia of this church, he lifted up his eyes and he said, Thy wounds, O Jesus. Thy wounds, O Jesus. This is your refuge, Christian. We have an appointed city of refuge who is Jesus Christ our Lord. So that no matter what trial you are going through, whatever weight of sin you have with all your doubts and despairs, fly to Jesus, your refuge. Now the Christians have fled for refuge to Christ as their only hope. But if you're a non-Christian, what hope do you have? If you've never fled to Christ for refuge, what hope do you have in this life? What comfort do you have in this world? All of your hope, all of your comfort, non-Christian, is founded on the hope that God may lie. You are banking on the fact, non-Christian, that God is a liar. And what is this hope based on? It's based on your own wishes your own desires, you who are fickle, you who are ever changing in your opinions, you who are unstable, non-Christian, God cannot lie. His word is sure and unchangeable. His promise, his word by an oath. Show me, show me if you can where God's word was ever broken and I will tell you where it has been kept even to the end. The greatest confirmation of God's unbroken word is when he sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to offer up as an eternal sacrifice for our sins and pay the debt for our sins in full on the cross and raise them up after three days where he entered within the veil where he is now seated at God's right hand. The empty tomb guarantees that there is coming a day for all who put their faith in Christ that we will be raised just as he was. So today, non-Christian, he promises you that if you fly to him, 
that if you put your faith in Christ, He will not cast you out. Flee to Christ for refuge. But secondly, take hold of the hope set before us. This is an encouragement that God has been desiring of us. This was the whole aim of this whole passage in setting forth Abraham as an example and looking at the two immutable things and the immutable God, and that is to lay hold of the promises before us. Now this hope is centered in Jesus Christ himself, as the next two verses will explain. Christ himself is the very embodiment of our hope. And this hope that is set before each one of us tells us that in Christ, we have the assurance that in the future, we will be with Christ and we will be like Christ. This is the hope of the crown of glory that is unfading. This is the hope of life everlasting. Glory undefiled. It's the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, this hope is worth seizing. God has set His hope before us. You and I then are invited to appropriate the hope that God places in full view before us. You and I then must grab onto the hope in Christ and press on towards everlasting life. Oh, then but let us turn. Let us turn away from the fleeting and self-defeating hopes of the world. Turn from all the hopes of the world that offers to us money of being comfortable, health and prosperity, things that can never give us full assurance of security in this life and this life afterwards. But let us put our hope in God. Let us then be men and women who spend hours over the Word of God, counting our Father's promises, holding up as jewels in the sunshine, gushing and rejoicing over them, and pressing forward so that we will be made ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then receive the imperishable inheritance, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how encouraging is this word to us. We are so thankful that your desire is to encourage our feeble hearts to your unshakable confidence in your promises. And when we consider your reliable and changeable word and the fact that you would go as far as making an oath to assure us, we confess our unbelief. We confess our tendency to put our hope in something other than you. We confess how many times we have sought to live by sight and not by faith. We have dishonored you by our doubting hearts. Forgive us, O Lord. We thank you that your promises to us never fail. Our security in you is not based on how we feel. Help us, O Lord, in our times of doubt and uncertainty to turn to you as our rock and our refuge. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. And when our thoughts are scattered and our emotions overwhelming, may we find our comfort and strength in your promises and your spirit to guide us into all truth. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, our very hope in life. Amen.